Hey, before I start, can we put our hands together for the worship team here? That was awesome. Here we go. All right, my name is Jackson. Pastor Brent did a pretty good job of introducing me, so we're just going to jump right into this thing. <laughs> my name's Jackson, but I've had many nicknames throughout my life. I have been a man of many nicknames, so we're going to run through some of those real quick. JC is my initials, Jackson Camerata, so that's a classic. People would call me JC. I used to coach youth flag football, so people would call me Coach Jackson. Long time ago, maybe like six months ago, I had really curly, frizzy hair because I had a perm. Weird time. So people would call me Hector Zeroni, as in Zero, the character from the movie Holes. That's a, that's a pretty fun one. My brothers are actually here today. They sometimes call me J Money, and when I was little, people would call me Action Jackson. That's kind of a weird nickname that I don't really like. <laughs> but I've also had some bad nicknames, some names that I have been called or called myself that I'm not too proud of. Names like Failure, Coward, Sinner. And these, these bad nicknames came in a moment that I like to call a cannonball moment. Now, a cannonball moment is when you're going one direction, your life is headed this way, but all of a sudden, something so catastrophic happens that now you're going back over here, you're going a new direction. In other words, it is when rain comes, wind blows, and blows away the whole house with it. This is not a term that I came up with. This term comes from the life of a man named Ignatius of Loyola. <laughs> Ignatius, so he lived in the 1400s and he started his life off as a womanizer and a soldier. He was obsessed with gaining fame in battle and using that fame to attract what he would call illustrious women. But one day he's fighting in a battle, the Battle of Pamplona, and a cannonball comes and strikes him in the leg, shattering his femur, should have killed him. But in his recovery, he came to know who Jesus was. He dedicated his life to Jesus and went on to form what is now known today as the Society of Jesus. He went from living a life that was so far removed from the life that Jesus calls us to live to a life utterly dedicated to Jesus. Now back to my life. I come from a family of grinders. Use this mic. Okay, cool. Should I just take this off? No, you leave it off. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> anyways, where was I? I come from a family of grinders, a family of high achievers. My dad, who's actually in the house today, he is a doctor. <laughs> And four of his immediate family members are also doctors. My mom, she went to Georgetown with my dad. Her brother also went to Georgetown, and another brother went to Stanford. So lots of great schools, lots of amazing careers in my family. So likewise, I put that pressure upon myself from a very young age. When I was just in middle school, I thought that I had to grind as hard as I could so I could be the best football player and go to the best high school. But when I got there, it wasn't enough. I had to do more. I had to grind so I could be on varsity and have the best grades. And that happened, and it still wasn't enough. And then I got to college. I'm living my dream, the dream that I had since a little child, to play college football. But it still wasn't enough. I couldn't buy my happiness. And for the first time in life, I was faced with failure. I realized that my pursuits were in vain. And in this moment, I fell into a deep depression, and I began to identify with my feelings of shame, my feelings of failure. I looked in the mirror and didn't see Jackson. I saw failure. I saw coward. I saw sinner. I saw my own shame. Let me ask you, has anyone ever been in this place before? Has anyone? You want the microphone or this? Are we on? All right, here we go. Turn that off. Okay. 
All right, here we go. <laughs> Has anyone ever identified so much with your own shame, your own sin, your own shortcomings that you forget your own name? Has the enemy ever been yelling and lying so loud in your ear that you forget what God calls you? Well, if you're feeling like that today or if you've ever felt like that, there's, there's a solution. And the solution is in the form of a math equation. That equation is name is greater than shame. Name is greater than shame. Let's keep that in mind as we jump into the word today. So if you got your Bibles with you, we're going to be in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. We're going to be looking at the life of a man named Saul of Tarsus. You may know him as the Apostle Paul, but right now he is just Saul. And Saul was a Pharisee, meaning he hated Christians. In fact, he even persecuted and murdered Christians. And one day he's traveling to a city called Damascus, and he's headed there to go persecute and kill more Christians. But while he's walking along the road, he's blinded by a light from heaven. He hears Jesus cry out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He falls over to the ground, gets up, open his eyes, but he can't see. He's blind. He's in shock. He's taken into Damascus where he rests for three days in his cannonball moment, a moment where he must have been tempted to feel so similar to you and I. So if you've got your Bibles with you, let's go Acts chapter 9. If not, no big deal. We'll have it up on the screen. But verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. So Ananias here, he's a Christian, a follower of Jesus. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So the Lord appears to Ananias and says, Go to Saul, go heal him, go fill him with my spirit. What does Ananias say? Verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias goes back, he goes, yo, God, I don't know what you've heard about Saul, but this is Saul, man, this is big, bad Saul, he's dangerous, bro, I don't want to go. I don't want to do it, God. <laughs> what does God say? But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument. Someone say chosen instrument. Chosen. Of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So God says back, I don't care what you've heard about him. I'm God. I know better. So go and listen to me. Ananias listens. Verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Someone say, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's bow our heads. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Your word is so good. It's so true. It says that it's sharper than any double-edged sword. God, I pray that that sword pierce our hearts today, that it change them. It changed them from hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, hearts that are unloving into hearts that know how to love, hearts that are deserted and barren wastelands into hearts that are gardens overflowing with your mercy, goodness, grace, and love. God, I pray that I take a step aside today, that Jackson's will, Jackson's understanding, Jackson's knowledge and wisdom take a seat 
and that you speak through me. You take captive my tongue. Your words flow from my mouth. Your wisdom, your truth, your goodness and love flows from my mouth. And that someone's life may be changed because of it. We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen, amen, amen. So like Pastor Brent said, I'm a football player. I'm a junior football player here at Wash U. But for this story, we're going to go back about four years to my junior year of high school. So my junior year of high school, I'm finally on varsity. I'm expecting a big season. I'm expecting a lot of catches, a lot of touchdowns, a lot of yards. By the way, I play receiver for those of y'all who don't know, meaning I catch the ball, score touchdowns. That's all you really need to know. <laughs> but I'm, I'm expecting a big season. But week four rolls around, and that hasn't been the case. I'm not playing as much as I wanted. I'm not doing as well as I wanted. In fact, I haven't even scored my first touchdown. But it's week four. We're playing a not-so-great team, so I'm thinking this may finally be the week where I score that touchdown. Getting ready. But halftime of the game rolls around, and I've barely played. I've played about two drives. I haven't got the ball thrown to me, so I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated with the season, with myself, with my coaches, with the game. But game continues on. It's the fourth quarter. I keep playing. My team's on the five-yard line, and I'm in the game. Coach calls the play, and I have a slant route, meaning I take three steps forward and break to the inside. And if, I'm, if I just catch the ball, <laughs> appreciate that. <laughs> but by the time, if I catch the ball, I'll already be in the end zone, so I'll already be able to score that touchdown. So I'm getting ready. I'm itching. I'm lining up. I'm strapping my gloves, getting ready to go. Quarterback says hike. I take my three steps forward, break to the inside. I beat the route. I beat my defender. All I have to do is catch the ball now. Quarterback throws it, releases it. I'm watching it in. I see it in the air. I see it hit my hands, and I see it go through my hands. I had dropped my opportunity at that first touchdown. But we had won the game, so we're in high spirits. Not a, big pe- not a big deal. People are coming up to me and saying, it's all good. Not a big deal, dude. You'll get it next time. Till I get into the car with my friend, who is the quarterback who threw me the ball. <laughs> and <laughs> he makes a joke and says, nice catch, Butterfingers, or something like that. Nice catch, Butterfingers. And I laughed it off. Not a big deal. Just a joke. But what was happening is I was being identified with my mistake, my shortcoming, not with who I am. And when we look at the word today, is this what God does? And the answer to that question is a resounding no. Verse 17, Ananias could have greeted Saul with the name murderer, with Pharisee, hater, or killer. But what does he say? He says, brother Saul. He calls him by his name. What does this mean? This means that God calls us by our name, not our shame. God calls you by your name, not your shame. In that same way, God knows every wrong that you have done and has every right to call you by something else, but he chooses to call you by who you are. He chooses to call you by your name. Ananias, he greets him with brother Saul. Brother Saul, brother, meaning you are welcomed into God's family. You are fully loved. And Saul, his name, your name, meaning you are fully known. What a desire that is to be fully known. We live in a very strange day and age. We can communicate with seven, almost eight billion people at our fingertips. I could call up a friend who lives in Japan. I could shoot someone a text who lives in Russia. Someone from Brazil could look at my Instagram and know of me, but it's almost like no one really knows me. It's almost like no one really knows us. True friends in today's day and age that truly know us are rare and few and far between. But God says he is closer than a friend. He is closer than a brother. God knows everything about you. He knows you better than you know you. Don't take my word for it. Listen to King David in Psalm 139. 
You have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. See, God knows everything. He knows your hopes and your dreams, the longings of your heart, your passions, your loves. But he also knows the bad. He knows about your 20s. (laughs) He knows about the club last weekend. He knows that you've been using the private browser on Safari too much. He knows it all. (laughs) And when the world would point at you if they knew it and call you by that shame, call you by that wrong, God still chooses to call you by your name. But he doesn't just leave it there. He takes it a step further. You want to know the truest thing about you? It's truer than the skin on your bones or the thoughts in your head. It's truer than even your own name. The truest thing about you is that you are fully loved by God. Ananias, he calls him Brother Saul, not Saul brother. And he calls him Brother Saul before Saul ever puts pen to paper and writes for the Lord. Before Saul ever proclaims with his mouth that Jesus is Lord. Before Saul is ever even baptized, he calls him Brother What does this mean? This means that you are called into God's family before you call God Father. You are called into, you are welcome. The invitation is there for you to join before you call him Father, before you bend the knee and call him Lord and King. There's no need to earn the Father's love. It's already there. His arms are open wide waiting for you. And that love was there at the beginning of time. And it will be there forever and ever. There's nothing that you need to do to earn it. And there's nothing that you can do to lose it because the truest thing about you, no matter what anyone in this world will tell you, is that you are fully loved by God. Hmm. Let's look back to the word. Verse 13. This is Ananias responding to God's request. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. What is Ananias doing? Ananias is giving God reasons why he cannot use Saul. He's bringing up Saul's past to disqualify Saul from his purpose. Does anyone ever do this? Does anyone ever have this conversation with God about yourself? I know I certainly do. I'll say, but God, I'm not brave enough. But God, I'm not strong enough. But God, look what I did back then. But God, I hurt this person back then. But God, I lied back then. But God, I messed up too bad. But God, but God, but God. But what does God say? Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go. He says, go. He doesn't even acknowledge Ananias' concerns. Why? For he is a chosen instrument. What does this mean? This means that God says purpose is more powerful than past, that your purpose is more powerful than your past. Now, I love summertime. Summertime is my favorite time of the year. I'm from Arizona, so it's really hot. We're always in the pool or the lake doing something while they're hanging around friends. It's a good time. But my favorite thing about summertime is that it is watermelon season. Now, watermelon is definitely the best fruit. If you think otherwise, you're wrong. (laughs) And there's, there's no feeling that beats walking into the store. You know, it's like mid-May, and you're going to pick out the first watermelon of the summer. So what you do is those sliding doors open. You go over to those little crates you got. And in order to pick out the right watermelon, what you want to do is you want to pick it up, feel it, maybe toss it up and down a couple times, see if it's got the right weight. Then you're going to put it down, and you're going to knock on it. Give it a good listen, see if it's got the right sound, the right density. 
Finally, the most important thing you want to do is see if it has scratches or scars. Scratches and scars are a good thing, too. It seems counterintuitive. You're like, why would I pick a watermelon with scratches and scars? That makes no sense. Shouldn't that be bad? But it turns out scratches and scars are actually from insects trying to get into the melon because it was sweeter than all the other fruits on the farm. So scratches and scars are actually a sign and symbol of a sweeter fruit. And you will choose the watermelon even with the scars. In fact, you will choose it because of the scars. How many of us know God operates in the same way? That God chooses us even with our scars. In fact, he chooses us because of our scars. Don't believe me. I got a list of God using people from the Bible even with their scars, even because of their scars. David, King David, greatest king of all of Israel, he was a cheater. He had an affair with a woman named Bathsheba. He even got Bathsheba's husband killed to hide the affair. Very bad thing to do. But out of that affair came a child, a child named Solomon. Solomon had a child named Rehoboam, and Rehoboam had some kids, and their kids had kids. Some generations passed, and out came the king of kings, Jesus Christ. So out of David's biggest mistake came the biggest miracle this world has ever seen, Jesus. Moses had a stutter. He couldn't speak well. But God still used him to deliver the plagues to Egypt, to free his people from Egypt and lead them to the promised land. Rahab was a prostitute. She sold her body for sex. Yet God still used her to hide the spies when the Israelites came to the promised land. And in her bloodline, like the bloodline of David, leads to Jesus Christ. Thomas was a doubter. He doubted if Jesus ever rose from the dead. He looked Jesus with his own two eyes and said, I need to touch the wounds in your hand. I need to touch the wound in your side before I can believe that you rose. But Jesus let him touch the wounds. And Thomas went on to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Matthew was a tax collector. Meaning, he took money out of his own people's pockets. Are you, you good, David? Not yet. <laughs> he, <laughs> he took money out of his own people's pockets <laughs> and gave it to the Romans, to a foreign government. Very, very shameful thing to do. Yet God still used him to write the gospel of Matthew and preach the good news of Jesus Christ to many. And this last one, Peter. Peter is my favorite. Peter on Jesus' last night was afraid. So he denied knowing Jesus. He was asked, do you know that man? Surely you must know him. And three times he said, I do not know him. I do not know him. I told you I don't know him. He denied knowing Jesus. But Jesus came back, redeemed him. And Peter went on to write two books in the New Testament, preached the gospel to many, raised the dead. And on Peter's last night when they said, deny Jesus one more time or we will crucify you too. Peter looks back at them and says, I cannot deny what I have seen. In fact, I am not worthy to be killed in the same manner of my Lord, so crucify me upside down. Peter took the ultimate stand for Jesus. Why? Because his purpose was more powerful than his past. So what in your past is holding you back from your purpose? Maybe it's a divorce, a failed marriage, something you never thought would happen. Maybe it's an addiction, something that took so long to get over. Maybe you're still not over it, and it bears such a shadow of shame on your life. Maybe it's an affair, something that you did to a spouse or a spouse did to you that you just can't look at yourself the same in the mirror anymore. Maybe it's a battle with anxiety or depression. It feels like a ball and chain attached to your foot. You want to walk forward to your future, but you can't. It's just holding you back. Maybe it was abuse, something that happened to you when you were a child or when you were younger that you can't forget about it. Maybe it was a lie you told or a diagnosis, something the doctor said. Maybe it was loss, the death of a loved one. I don't know what's in your past. 
But listen to me, this is what I do know. I know that God is not done with you. That God isn't finished with you. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. God still has a promise. He still has a purpose. He still has a plan and calling on each and every one of your lives. And there's nothing that you could have done to take that away. And nothing that could have been done to you to take that away. Why? Because your purpose is more powerful than your past. Let's look back to the word one more time. Verse 16. It's God speaking about Saul. For I will show him how much he must suffer. Someone say suffer. Suffer. For the sake of my name. God doesn't show Saul what he will accomplish. He doesn't show him the books he will write, the people he'll preach to, the mighty deeds that he will do. He shows him what he will suffer. How many of us know that suffering is a very real part of life? That life is not easy. Now, God doesn't promise that life will be easy, but he promises that he will be there with us, holding our hand, guiding our steps the whole way we go, no matter how hard it gets. And he doesn't leave it at that. He takes it a step further. God doesn't turn a blind eye to our suffering. He doesn't hide his face from us and our suffering. We have a God that turns suffering into salvation. God turns suffering to salvation. Now, I apologize for this last example, but... I'm a football player, so that's all this head could conjure up. Maybe too many concussions or something. But Tom Brady, many of us know him. Tom Brady, even if you don't know football, he's very famous. He's probably the greatest football player of all time. But he's also famous. Hey, I'm a Peyton Manning fan. Come on. But uh, Tom Brady, he's also famous for his off-season training method, known as the TB12 method. This consisted of intense dieting and very, very hard workouts. Brady would work out for hours each day, not just one hour, hours plural, even on vacation, he would still get two workouts in. That's just crazy. His diet would be planned years in advance. He'd only eat local plant-based foods with no pasta, no alcohol, no gluten, no cereal. In fact, one of his favorite cheat meals was avocado ice cream. Avocado ice cream, that sounds rancid and disgusting and vile, and I want nothing to do with that. (laughs) Rodney Harrison, a former teammate of his when he was on the Patriots, claims you showed up to the gym one time at 6 a.m. That's before I woke up. That's before many of us woke up very early, before the sun usually comes up. But Brady had been in the gym so long that he greeted him with good afternoon. Good afternoon. (laughs) Now many, I certainly would describe this, this training program as suffering. It's hard. It's painful. But out of this suffering led to Brady winning seven Super Bowls and being regarded as the greatest quarterback of all time. And this is coming from a diehard Peyton Manning fan. It's just the greatest. So his suffering led to the greatness of his career. Let me tell you, Saul suffered too. Saul, after he became a Christian, was kidnapped, was beaten, jailed, shipwrecked three times. Like what? He was bitten by a viper. He lived a hard life. But out of Saul's suffering came the book of Romans and 1 and 2 Corinthians and Ephesians and Philippians. The list goes on and on because Saul wrote nearly half the New Testament. And millions and millions of believers came to know the name Jesus Christ through the works of Saul. But we aren't here to talk about Saul today, are we? We didn't sing, what a beautiful name it is, what a beautiful name it is, the name of Saul of Tarsus, no. We aren't here gathered in the name of Saul today, are we? We are gathered in the name of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the one who reigns forever and ever, Jesus Christ. And I'll close with this. (laughs) Jesus suffered too. We all know it. On his last night, Jesus was... Betrayed by one of his closest 12. He was denied by another Peter, as we just talked about. 
The next morning, he was woken with a brutal beating. Every inch of his life was beaten out of him. He was last 40 minus one times because 40 was known to kill a man. They wanted him alive. They wanted him to feel that pain. He watched blood drip down from his face as they drove a crown of thorns into his head. And after all this beating, they handed him a Roman cross, a wooden cross to carry up a hill and die. Nowadays, we wear crosses on our necks. They're about two inches tall and sparkled out with diamonds as signs of our salvation. But back in that day, the cross was not a sign of salvation. It was a sign of shame. The most shameful thing someone could do was endure the cross. And, Jesus, and, and crosses, they weren't, they weren't two inches tall and bedazzled out with diamonds. They were eight feet tall and over 300 pounds. And Jesus took this upon his bloody back, walked up a mountain. When he got to the top of the mountain, he handed over his hands, watched nails go through them, where he was strung up to die the most excruciatingly painful death humanly imaginable. But out of that suffering comes salvation for you and for me and all those who believe. Out of that great suffering comes literal salvation. God turns the greatest suffering into the greatest gift, the greatest miracle the world has ever seen. So let me tell you this. If God can turn that into salvation, he can turn whatever you are going through into something good. He can turn your personal suffering into salvation. He can turn your mistakes into his miracles. He can turn your mourning into dancing and shouts of joy. He can turn you into a new creation. In fact, he will. Because that love of Jesus is so powerful that you are forced. It's so irresistible that you do become something new. A sneak peek into the Bible here. Saul does not remain Saul. He becomes the Apostle Paul. God changes his name. And you are not going to stay you. You are going to become a new creation. God is going to change your name. Revelation chapter 2 verse 17. To the one who conquers, that's all of us as we are conquerors in Christ. I will give some of the hidden manna, it's bread from heaven, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What does this mean? Well, we are given a white stone because someone else took the consequences of a black stone. Jesus took the consequences of a black stone. In Roman times, in Roman courts, if you are deemed innocent, you are given a white stone and you are free to go. But if you are guilty, you are given a black stone and you must suffer the consequences. And we all know today that we are not innocent. We are guilty. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we get a white stone instead of a black stone because Jesus bore our punishment. He took it for us. So by the blood of Jesus, you're given a white stone, not a black stone. By the blood of Jesus, your wrong is replaced with his right. By the blood of Jesus, your old name, a name associated with the dirt and the grime and the filth and the pain of this world is replaced with a new and heavenly name. Can we just imagine what this would look like if we knew this? If we could just know that God has a heavenly name waiting for us. If we knew that name is greater than shame, if we knew that suffering becomes salvation and purpose is more powerful than past, if we could just be still and know that he is God. Well, this is what I see. This is what I imagine. I, I imagine chains breaking. I see chains of depression falling to the floor, chains of shame, chains of addiction, chains of racism falling to the floor. I see families coming back together. I see people walking in here broken and leaving healed. I see people walking in here weeping and leaving dancing. I see people walking in here dead and walking out resurrected in new life. And I see more. I see the gates of hell shaking with fear when Satan looks upon one family church because he sees me and you reigning as kings and queens of the Most High God, bringing people and God together in love. Let's bow our heads. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this. Thank you 
that you call us by our name. You call us by who we are, not what we have done. I thank you that you give our life a purpose, a meaning. I thank you that you turn our suffering into salvation, into something more. God, I pray for anyone in this room that has not yet experienced the love of Jesus, does not know your goodness. God, I pray that you wrap them in your love, your spirit stir up in their heart, and that they come to know, they come to believe, they come to experience the risen Lord. I, I also pray for anyone that feels like they may have fallen away in faith, that feels like their faith is not as strong as it used to be. God, I pray that you comfort them, you show them that faith is not based in a feeling, that faith is the assurance of the things that we hope for, that it is based in the fact of Jesus Christ on the cross and nothing can take that away. So I pray you give them the joy of their salvation back. And God, I pray for all of us that you mold us into the men and women of God, the kings and queens of God that you want us to be, that we can be lights to the world, illuminating not our own names, illuminating not one family church, but illuminating your name because you're the only one that's worthy of it all. We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen, amen, amen.